Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Welcome back to our What is the Church class. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump right in with our conversations about worship tonight. Father God, as we talk about worship, we pray that you would uh, provide us with a spirit and heart of worship. We thank you for the fact that in some sense you've done this by virtue of depositing your own spirit, your own life within us. And so we pray that you would help us to just get the flesh out of the way uh, consistently and even in this moment that uh, by looking closely at this particular practice, we could uh, better understand who you are and therefore kind of naturally become better at doing this thing. So we're grateful for the chance to continue our conversations about who we are and what we do, and we pray that uh, you continue to bless us as you have done so, uh, so far during our times together. So be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to be talking about worship tonight, and uh, right off the top here, I would just like to give you an opportunity to reflect before I contaminate your minds with any of my own thoughts. Uh, if you have the note sheet there, or if you don't have that, maybe you just can take some notes on your phone. If you're whatever, listen on the podcast, you can certainly do whatever would be beneficial for you. I just want you to somewhere do some thinking, and I'd like for you to do some, some writing down of your definition of worship. It doesn't have to be fancy. No one's going to make you share it or say it to anybody else. But if somebody said to you, what is worship? I want you to think for a few moments about how you would respond. So you're in an elevator and you have just about, you know, 30 seconds until the door opens and somebody turns to you and says, what is worship? Because that's realistic. Anyway, what would you say? I'll give you a moment to think and then we'll talk. Okay, the button dings and the elevator door opens. The conversation is over. Um, I'm sure I cut some of you off mid-thought, so I encourage you to continue along that thought later when you have some time, and I hope to be able to feed some things into that, certainly over the course of our time tonight. I would like to hear from some of you who wouldn't mind sharing. Again, no pressure, but if any of you want to uh, holler out your your own kind of brief definition of worship or what came off the top of your head, and then I'll repeat it so we can get it recorded, and we'll just kind of get some ideas up on the board, so to speak. And then we'll corral them as best we can. How did some of you define worship? What is worship? Talking to God. God. Okay, I like that. So you have the, the object of the conversation and the conversation. So talking to God. Good. What else? A response to God. I'm going to make a big deal about that a lot tonight. Good. And then I heard an honoring of God. Yeah. So um, where honoring is a concept that kind of incorporates the verbal as does response. Response leaves it open. Well, what kind of a response? Well, that's, that's the question. Any kind of response that is appropriate to who God is to, to honor him in that sense. Absolutely. What are some others? I like that. Exalting the joyous wonders and attributes of God. Excellent. Yeah, that's beautiful. Good. What else we got? Yes, ma'am. A pouring out of love for the Father. Yeah, and even there I like the word that we've defined this relationship as, fa- as father-child, father-son, father-daughter, and there's a pouring out of love so that it's, yeah, it's not like a wooden thing, but it takes place in the context of this relationship that has been established. He's initiated, we've received, those kinds of things. Good, anything else? Meditation. I like that. Yeah, there's a critical piece of that. One of the, one of the primary things... I hope I can communicate pretty clearly and consistently today is if you meditate on God, if you think about God, you kind of can't help but worship him. 
Um, if you consider who he is, his attributes, the wonders of his being, worship, like will happen if you're thinking truly about him. Good. Uh, any, any others? Maybe one or two more. What else we got? Yes. Encompasses our entire lives, not just music on Sunday morning. Excellent. Yeah, we're going to talk about how worship is, is something that happens on Sunday, but it also happens the other six days. Worship is something that involves singing, declaring things, but it also happens in, 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 in other ways that encompass our entire lives. Excellent. Good. Yes. Being reverent to God. I like this. Good. So clearly we have, by virtue of the Spirit's presence in our lives and our lives of following Jesus and learning from God who he is and how to follow him, we've got some pretty good things to work with. This is going to be a lot of fun. So let me begin with a few opening thoughts to frame our discussion, and then we'll come right back to this very question, what is worship, and try to get our, get our hands around some more thoughts that, um, that can clarify for us the different dimensions of what we're doing. We are turning a corner. Uh, in our in our time together, because so far we've been talking about what the church is. We've spent a decent amount of time talking about what the church is. We've looked at some primary metaphors and unpacked those in some degree of depth. And then last week we tried to pull all this together and suggested that really there's three core dimensions or core components of the church. Gospel, this discipleship community following Jesus together, and then the, and then the mission, kind of living to serve him. Where you have all three of those together, there's the church. Where you lack one or more of those, you have a, a kind of a deformed version of the church or something other than the church. And so now we say, okay, now that we've got who we are, what do we do? So we've intentionally laid it out this way because it is important to root our actions in our identity. Before you answer the question, what should I do? You have to be able to answer the question, who am I? And that's always going to be true. We kind of recognize this implicitly. Just, I think it's part of the, our DNA as humans, part of the image of God being present in us. So you think about movies, everything from The Lion King and Harry Potter to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Like all of these uh, hover around this concept of identity. You got to know who you are if you're going to know how to take the proper next step. And if you don't know who you are, if we, in talking about the faith, uh, try to go straight at the behavior piece, straight at the here's what we should do without first asking who we are, then we're liable to fall into any number of traps. We might fall into the trap of, of just kind of creating God in our own image. You know, we're going to do whatever we want to do, and we're going to say this is what you want us to do. We could fall into the trap of legalism. Okay, we're going to, here's, here's our rule list. So we're just going to focus on that and doing those things. We could fall into any number of traps, which we've tried to avoid by saying, who are we? Uh, but now that we've got that, at a certain point, you kind of got to move forward and ask, okay, now what are we supposed to do? <laughs> like, it's wonderful to, to have some sense, uh, critical core uh, sense of our identity, but ultimately then we do need to talk further about how this plays out in action. What are the kind of things that this would call out from us? And so even if we could say, generally speaking, we live out the gospel by following Jesus together, let's try to put some more parameters on that. That's what we're going to be doing over the course of our next three weeks together. And really, if you break down what this means, the core practices is essentially what we're talking about into their like simplest form. If you take all the different things that we do and try to put you know, subheadings under headings and arrange things together, ultimately, I think you're going to find that there are three basic directions to this, or three basic dimensions of this, and that is what we might call a God-directed a God dimension, that is worship. Then there's, uh, there's like an inward, and I mean this in a communal sense, an inward dimension, and that's community, building each other up. And then we have the outward dimension of mission. 
So our practices, kind of like we in the end realize that our identity has this threefold structure to it, our practices will be similar. And uh, today we are, um, once again, you lose any of these and we're talking about something other than the church. If you have a group of people who aren't worshiping, that's not the church. If you have a group of people who's not building up the community, then they're, they're, again, either not the church or a deformed version of the church. And if you have a group of people who aren't living on mission, I'm sorry, but biblically, that is not something that, that counts as the church. So it has to be these three together, and uh, we're going to be talking about worship for our time tonight. Let me make this final opening statement as kind of a heading for why we're talking about this next. And that would be, and I think actually the blanks are filled in on this one, uh, that worship is our first active response to the gospel. It is our first active response to the gospel. And I choose those words pretty intentionally It's not our first response to the gospel. Our first response to the gospel is what? It is to receive it. Our first response to the gospel is just to to say, I trust that. There is is an activeness to it, but as much as anything, it's a passive move. It's a reception of what God has done. Christianity is not about what we do. It is about what God has D-O-N-E done. And so our first response to the gospel is just to receive God's grace and to trust in it. And that then immediately becomes worship. Our first active response, the first thing we actually like do is we worship God. Let me give you one verse that I think shows this pretty clearly. It's Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2, and it's coming up here. Uh, the verse says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, I want you to think about the, the, what the, where this verse is found. Romans 12.1. So, I don't know how well you know the Bible, but Romans is a, is a pretty like thick and heavy and important book. And in the first 11 chapters, Paul goes into great detail unpacking his gospel. And about how all people, Jews and Gentiles, are broken by sin. And all people, Jews and Gentiles, are saved in Christ. And in all of this, God has always been being faithful to the promises he made from the very beginning. There's just this massive, huge, big theological statement. And then you get to the very next section. As soon as he finally finishes the the bulk of his argument, he says, therefore. So in light of all that, therefore, in view of God's mercy... So he summarizes everything he has said before as God's mercy. God reaching out to us when we were in a position of need and not laughing at us when we were in the ditch and not leaving us there saying, well, you're the one that got yourself there, so figure it out. But reaching down, picking us up, dusting us off, making us his own in view of all that. Paul says, here's what you do. Let me read it one more time. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So we'll come back and look at some other aspects of that verse a little later on. But for now, let's just acknowledge that worship is our first active response to the gospel. We are are a worshiping people because we are a gospel people. And Jesus came and saved us so that we might worship him. If you're looking for a narrative form of that, look at John 4. Jesus has a conversation with a particular woman whose life was broken. And the conversation turns to worship. And he clarifies for her that the reason he came was to turn her into a faithful worshiper. And not just her, but all of her people and all of the other peoples as well. So we're saved to worship because we were created to worship. So when the gospel puts us back together, it starts us off on the proper footing with worship. But then we come to this question, what is worship? Now let's not pretend that you don't have a good definition because clearly you do. 
I gave you just literally one minute and you came up with some pretty not only true stuff, but beautiful stuff. But let's see if we can increase our understanding of this and kind of add some different elements to it. And uh, before we get to some definitions, I want to just look at some of the different elements of worship, biblically speaking. If you were to look at a number of different um, statements about worship or experiences of worship, what are some of the common things that you tend to see? So we're going to look through some of these with some verses as well. Then we'll look at some big old fancy big definitions. Then we'll try to get a simple one and unpack it a little bit. So let's look through some of these verses that tell us some of the different elements that make up worship. First of all, you have thanksgiving. Again, kind of makes sense if this is our active response to the gospel that one of the first things we do in worshiping is saying thank you. So you have Psalm 100 uh, verse 4 which says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. So giving thanks and, and praising him are in a sense like almost this is part of the same process. We thank him for what he's done. Another dimension of thanksgiving would be adoration. If thanksgiving is thanking God for the things that he's done for us, adoration is just, just expressing God's intrinsic awesomeness. So you have, for instance, Psalm 104.1. Oh Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. This is the psalmist using terms from his world to describe the majesty of God, the splendor of God, the wonder of God. God, you just, I look at you and what I see is amazing. So we wrap up and pile upon superlatives to try to figure out ways to adequately express this. We adore him. Another element of worship, though, which needs to not go unnoticed would be fear. I mean, you think about some of the stories where people actually came face to face with God. They weren't laughing as if at a joke. They were uh, terrified at what might take place as a result of this. A famous one is, is in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah sees him and he's afraid because he's unclean. Another famous one is in Genesis 28 when Jacob has this dream in which there's a ladder and the angels descending, ascending, and he wakes up and here's what he says. It says, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, this is Genesis 28, 16, and 17, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord was in this place, or is in this place, excuse me, and I was not aware of it. He was, what's the next word? Afraid, and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. And there is a sense in which the word fear here in both the Hebrew and the Greek leans more toward the idea of revere or a, a deep respect for, but let's also acknowledge dude was afraid. You know what I mean? Like he actually, what we mean when we say fear is what he was feeling when he realized that God's presence is where he was. So we have fear. A couple more though, it's certainly not just or even primarily negative. There's a sense in which worship is this bubbling up of, of joy. Look at this verse from, uh, again, the Psalms. This is a combination of Psalm 98, back it up one more, 98, 4, and 5, and then 101. Uh, the psalmist says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. You could just feel it like bubbling up. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. So joy is present in worship. Notice what we, um, you, you'd mentioned earlier, responding to God. We're looking at different types of responses to God. Let me give you a couple more. One that may, may be almost all-encompassing, but um, I wouldn't want to just use one, is another word, uh, awe. We talk about something as awesome, which means that it is like awe, 
fold. We, even the word awful itself, now it just means like really bad, but it used to mean full of awe. So in the ancients, you could read some ancient uh, in English works about the character of God, and they would talk about how God is awful. Now, they, they don't mean what we would mean in our world. They're not saying he's just a bad person to be around. They're saying he elicits awe in us, much like Habakkuk said, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. You go Google the phrase, I stand in awe, and you'll find enough verses to last you uh, pretty much the entire evening, if not longer. You just meditate on those themselves. So we stand in awe of God. And then lastly, it's not just that a lot of things are sort of happening within us, and it's so wonderful and amazing. There's a sense in which worship involves us giving ourselves over to God. So we end with surrender. would be our final element of worship. This is, I think, what you see in Romans 12 that we just quoted or just read about offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, surrender yourself to him. We see this in active form in that, in that story I mentioned a minute ago, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is, 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 is in the presence of God and notice how he responds. He's, then I heard a voice of the, the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. So worship involves a signing up of sorts, a surrendering of my life. If I see who God is, then I'm naturally going to kind of give myself to him. So I go through those, honestly, pretty quickly, uh, bullet style, just one, two, three, four, five, six, because I want us to see that whatever it is we're talking about when we talk about worship, it has many dimensions. One would expect a room such as this to define it in multiple different ways, as we saw at the beginning, because it's just not one facet of a thing. So let's, uh, as we continue to try to understand what it is, kind of briefly walk through some of these definitions. These are not the kind of definitions that you want to try to remember, but they are the kind of definitions that are at times helpful to look at. Here are some helpful, though wordy, definitions of worship. This first one is from J.I. Packer, who wrote a book called uh, Knowing God, a pretty popular book, and for good reason. He said, to worship God is to recognize his worth or worthiness, to look Godward, and to acknowledge in all appropriate ways the value of what we see. So even the word worship in English literally means to ascribe worth to something. So Packer's saying it's to, to look at God and to ascribe worth to him because he deserves it. Like what we see is eminently valuable. So we're going to try to express that in some way. A little bit longer, A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite writers, who I'm going to mention at the end again and encourage you to grab uh, one of his books, which is in our bookstore. He says to worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner. A humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overpowering love in the presence of that most ancient mystery, that majesty which philosophers call the first cause, but which we call our Father who art in heaven. I don't know if there's any single writer outside of the biblical text that has helped me magnify God more than A.W. Tozer. Because that right there comes straight out of the dude's heart. Like that's how he lives. And he's giving us a pretty good definition of worship. Here's another one from G. Campbell Morgan. Worship is the recognition of God's sufficiency. I love that word here. He's enough. The recognition of God's enoughness. The recognition of one's absolute dependence upon God's sufficiency. And the confession that all he needs in his own life he finds in the life of God. I think that's probably where I ended yours. He goes on to say, and the spoken answer to that conviction of the abandonment and surrender of the whole man to God is worship. It's this attitude of looking at who God is and saying, yes, I'm going to say yes to that in whatever way I can. One more kind of longer one that I'll give you my simple one that we'll be unpacking and kind of assuming today. This one from Dallas Willard, a more recent writer who, again, has helped me immensely. He says, in worship, we engage ourselves, dwell upon, and express 
the greatness, beauty, and goodness of God through thought and the use of words, rituals, and symbols. To worship is to see God as worthy, to ascribe great worth to him. So here's my simple definition of worship. Um, I tried to kind of pare it down as much as I can without getting rid of anything that is essential. And if I were to try to attempt that, here's what I would say. I don't know if this is what I would say in an elevator. Kind of probably depends who I'm talking to. I would probably go with the, to like acknowledge something's worth. That's what I would say. But since I'm talking to you, we're among friends. Here's how I would define worship. Worship is acknowledging and appropriately expressing the awesomeness of God. Worship is acknowledging and appropriately expressing the awesomeness of God. So notice the very elements this, the, the, the elements of this definition. Like the awesomeness of God is the main thing. It's there, like whether we realize it or not. To worship is to acknowledge it, to see it, to recognize it, and then to appropriately express it. This, I think, covers the primary basis when it comes to what is worship. That I look at God, I see him, and I acknowledge what I'm looking at, looking at as majestic and amazing and splendorous and wonderful and beautiful and good and great and holy and immense and inconceivable and incomprehensible. What I'm looking at is perfection perfected. And then I express that in some appropriate way. That's the definition of worship that we're going to be kind of assuming. And so let's unpack it a little bit further here up top. True worship happens in spirit and in truth, Jesus said. So what does that mean? Well, the in spirit part, I think he's pointing to kind of the sincerity. And the truth part is pointing to like it's rooted in who God really is. So think about that in light of our definition to acknowledge and appropriately express the awesomeness of God. True worship, the best worship, is looking at God truthfully. Seeing God as in some sense he sees himself and then expressing that sincerely. That is true worship, John chapter 4. So we're talking in more kind of down-to-earth terms about praising and thanking and trusting and obeying and serving and enjoying God. We praise him. We, we kind of verbalize his awesomeness, his glory, his sufficiency. We thank him. We express gratitude for his gifts. But also to adequately express God's worth would be to trust him. We rely on him. We depend on him. We, we lean on him. We rest in him. We also serve and obey him. He becomes our cause. He becomes our Lord. He becomes our master. And we need to include this. We enjoy him. Again, that joy piece. So all of these things are different ways of expressing God. To use some of the language that we use in our kind of modern way of speaking, I think we might say that to do this, to, to acknowledge and express who God is, is to find our identity in him. So we don't find our identity in our, in our abilities. We don't find our identity in our possessions. We don't find our identity in our family or our work or our country or our particular local congregation. We find our identity in him. We are worshipers. And so we look to him to tell us that we are valuable. We look to him to define our self-worth. We look to him to determine whether or not our lives are as they should be. And then we might also say that, that, that to do this is to make God ultimate in our lives that he's kind of the number one top thing. So these are all different ways of, of essentially saying the same kind of thing, that we acknowledge and appropriately express the, the awesomeness of God, the greatness of goodness, the glory and sufficiency. That's what worship is. So then that leaves us, though, with kind of a maybe helpful definition, I hope, but what do we do then? 
Let's get practical because like I said, I told you what we're going to be talking about here is what we do. How do we worship? And I want to break this up into two parts. We worship on Sundays and we worship uh, the other six days. So when it comes to worshiping on Sundays, let's just acknowledge from the start, like this is why we gather. Our call to worship could be Psalm 95. Come, let us magnify the Lord together. That's like the reason why we, we gather as a church to worship God. Hebrews talks about this consistently, especially in chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. This is why we do this. So what I want you to do is, let's look here at the different elements of our gathering. Like this Sunday, when we come in here into this room together, into this place together, the main things that we'll be doing are we'll worship through song, we'll worship through prayer, we'll worship through preaching and teaching, and we'll worship through baptism and communion. So what I want you to do now is I would like for you actually to get into groups of about three or four and have some discussion and dialogue and somebody kind of appoint themselves the mediator. If you're a red, then this is you. And just that make sure that we're kind of walking through these. And here's what I want you to do. Look at these different things, singing, prayer, preaching and teaching, baptism and communion, and ask how are these worship? By which I mean, how are these ways that we acknowledge and appropriately express the awesomeness of God? Fair enough? So some of them will be obvious and easy. Others, you may have to think about it a little bit. So group up, again, three or four, and talk for, I'll probably give you about four or five minutes, maybe a little longer if you're still going and need it, and talk about how the different elements of what we do together can be best understood or can at least be mostly understood as acts of worship. You discuss among yourselves, and then I'll see what you got and share some additional thoughts as well. So we'll the music. You guys group up, and uh, let's do some discussion together. I'm impressed. All right, let me go ahead and pull you back together. Uh, it's fun to hear those of you I could hear. I don't have like Superman ears, but I like to hear these conversations. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what, some of what you saw. Walking through the basic practices. If anybody were to just walk in here and observe, like what is it that these people do? They would say, well, they sing and they pray a lot. And then it kind of seems like maybe the prayer is so that people can get off the stage and other people, I'm just kidding. <laughs> So they pray, they talk to God, they, they do some like this one guy, usually somebody with a really shiny head gets up here and talks for a while. And, um, and then they also do these other weird things where they like eat this special meal and then sometimes things happen over there in the water. So let's talk through these different pieces. When it comes to the singing, how is singing a way in which we acknowledge and appropriately express the awesomeness of God? In any takers? Yes. Okay. You have in the Psalms, forgive me, I can't think of the reference off the top of my head, but you have this statement that the, that the Lord dwells in the praise, inhabits the praises of his people. And there's a sense in which that probably is kind of fulfilled in the, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost present with us. And even in that statement, John 4, worshiping in spirit and in truth, there is a possibility that there's a double meaning there for spirit. That we have this idea of like in spirit meaning with sincerity, but also in spirit meaning the Holy Spirit is encompassing. Okay, yeah, so the God is with us. So it's not even just I'm looking out at him, but as we acknowledge through song that he's awesome, we even experience him in some, some, some other fresh, interesting, powerful ways. Yes. Yeah. They would send singers first. I like that. Yeah. How many of you, singing was like the easiest one. It's kind of like, yeah, well, how many of you, let me ask you this way. When I say worship, you think singing. 
That's, that's true for most of us. And that's actually not bad. Worship is indeed more than just singing. It encompasses all of life. But just because it's more than singing doesn't mean it's not less than singing. No less than 40 times in the Psalms are we commanded to sing. And not just because, like, God likes hearing his own name chanted. Like, this is, this is good for us. This is, this is just appropriate. Because we sing about things that we realize. Like, I sing about, I do not sing at all. Like, I even hate singing. In, I love God. But I don't like singing. So for me, the singing is, I wouldn't do this otherwise, but you're just this good, so I sing. I sing over my kids, right? Sometimes if I'm feeling really loopy, I sing over my wife, even though I can't sing worth a lick because they're, like, they're valuable and they're worth it. So we sing about things that are worth something to us. And even beyond this idea of singing because we feel the worth of something, there's a discipline to this that, I, that even takes somebody like me who, no joke, like I don't enjoy the process of singing worship songs for its own sake. Which you may think, well, you like are miserable. No, it actually, I'm kind of glad because every time I sing, if I'm going to sing, it's really because the only reason is because I mean what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Like there would never be a sense in which I was singing because I just enjoy the singing except for Good Good Father. But that's also because that's my favorite song because it's so true. You know what I mean? Anyway, so we sing and the singing to God and thinking about what we're saying kind of helps us draw our attention to him, which just leads to more singing. And also when we sing, realize that what we're doing is we are articulating the inarticulate worship of all creation. Like when a flower blooms, that flower is worshiping. Read Psalm 104. When a deer runs down a field, that deer is worshiping. It's doing what it was made to do. When a lion roars, it is worshiping. I want to say when a mosquito bites, but I don't understand how that's worship, so we won't even go there. But when like things do what they're made to do, they're worshiping, but they can't say it. We alone, this is part of our responsibility as those made in God's image, have the ability to articulate the inarticulate praise of all creation. So singing is kind of like, yeah, like that's what we're doing. We're talking about God's greatness. Let's go to the next piece though, our praying. How is our praying also worship? Any thoughts? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so it seems like if, if um, again, if worship is to acknowledge and to express God's awesomeness, the fact that God is here listening would lead us to pray to him. Absolutely. Good. What else did you come up with? Some others. Yes. I think it's Diane back there. I can't. Okay, so in prayer we say God is such that he's the kind of being that probably like when he's around, part of what I ought to do is shut up. You know what I mean? Like just zip it. And hush and listen. Yeah, which is in itself an act of worship. You think about times when you tell your kids, quiet, because it is time for them to respect and revere and listen based on your authority, your awesomeness, as it were, your authority. So yes, to listen to God, to talk to him is worship, to depend on him is worship, to pray. Like we only pray because we realize we can't take care of it on our own. Like for most people, people who don't believe in God, when they pray, when they realize they're kind of at their wits end, and you hear people say, I'm just praying. You pray? Like, do you believe in God? Ah, not really, but I just didn't know what else to do. Oh, okay. So we pray when we don't know what to do. We pray all the time because we're acknowledging that we can't do without him. So prayer is worship. What about the preaching and teaching piece? What are some others? How is this worship? When a person gets up here and preaches or teaches in some other parts of the building and, and the rest of us listen, in what way is that a way of acknowledging and appropriately expressing the, the, the awesomeness of God? Yes, Marcy. Um, 
Amen. We, yeah, did I cut you off? Sorry. I was about to repeat you, but I don't want to cut you off. We acknowledge that we're not self-sufficient, that we need his instruction. I'm a person that needs to be told how to live. Like, think about how strange that is for grown people. Generally speaking, we associate sitting and listening to somebody else tell you what to do with childhood. And this doesn't mean that we are immature children in like some weird unhealthy way. It means that we acknowledge we are in need of guidance. We are a people who need to sit under ultimately the preaching and teaching of this. Because this is how we evaluate it. It's not how much we like the person or how how wonderful they are or even how kind they are to us. It is are they preaching the truth from scripture that God has revealed. So yeah, we are, I mean simply put, I don't even know how to say it better or add to that. We are acknowledging I'm not self-sufficient. I need him to tell me. I need him to teach me. I'm going to sit underneath this. Good. So we have the preaching and the teaching is this. What about baptism and communion? How many of your groups got far enough to talk about baptism and communion. All right. Some of those who did, what are some of the things that you guys came up with? Back up. Yeah. He tells us to do this. He says, be baptized. So obedience. Yeah. As we acknowledge this, the way express his awesomeness, we do it. Good. Yeah. What else? Yes. Yeah. And you probably didn't mean to, but you just started listing off our elements of worship. You know what I mean? Because that's what it does in you. Yeah, it elicits these things when you see this from someone else. Good. And then baptism. What is baptism? But somebody giving their life to God. That would seem like an appropriate expression of his awesomeness, to hand yourself over to him. What about communion? How is this? uh, Yes. Yeah. Yes. I like, yeah, all those elements, there's the awe in light of what he's done. So we're, we're acknowledging, here's what you've done. I'm going to respond to this. And the response is one of awe and finding our identity in this meal. Food defines us. That's part of why we were given a meal. And there is an act of surrender here. So we're thinking about the moment when God most clearly reveals who he is. His awesomeness is nowhere seen more clearly than in the cross. We have this great combination of his wisdom and power and love in such a surprising way that nobody would predict because nobody's as brilliant and strong and loving as him. And so we're thinking about this moment when he most clearly tells us who he is and we are appropriately responding to it in any number of different ways. So what we do here is obviously worship. That's how we do it. That's the primary purpose of our gathering is to direct ourselves to God in certain ways through these core practices. But of course, we recognize that worship isn't something that only happens on... yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, no question in my mind. 
Right, even if, even, if, even if all you were doing in those situations is complaining, sometimes to, to complain is actually to worship because you're only complaining because you are acknowledging that you believe God is big enough to put the world back together again and your world is not together right now. So to talk to him about that, to wrestle with him about that, that's why the Psalms are dirty. That's why the Psalms are messy. That's why the Psalms are, are uh, raw, you know what I mean? We talk about how this person's a little rough around the edges. I often think that about the Psalms. They're a little rough around the edges. You know what I mean? But yeah, and I'm actually going to come back to that here in a moment. I would argue that worship at times arises most powerfully out of some of the most unlikely situations. Yeah, Andy. Yeah. Absolutely. Gosh, you, yeah, you said it. So communion is, is the, it, it, it perfectly encompasses the individual and communal uh, pieces of this. That I am surrendering myself to the Lord and remembering this, his gift for me. Coloss- or Galatians 2, Paul says, Jesus died and gave himself up for me. And there's also, though, an us that is every bit as present in the moment. Not only in the room, but across the world as we all do these things. That's why I'm pretty passionate, very passionate about communion every week. Not because I'm a legalist, but because I have no, it's like, do you have to have a birthday party every year on your birthday? What? Why would you not want to in that sense? Absolutely. So good. So worshiping on Sundays is, is bolstered by worshiping the other six days. We recognize that worship isn't just something that only happens on Sundays, but it continues beyond it. So what do we say about that? First of all, we say that that is the case. <laughs> we say that if we're only worshiping one day a week, we're not worshiping well. Remember Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, in light of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It doesn't say only on Sunday. There's no like, you know, footnote in the Greek that says just the first day of the week. No, this is just a way in which we live. And while gathering is critical for a life of worship, so is scattering. Moving on, I remember that was what I want to show you the next verse. Look at how it follows. This is your true and proper worship at the end of verse 1. And then verse 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We're talking about everyday life here, which is included in a life of worship. So what do you do? In one sense, you kind of take, quote-unquote, Sunday with you. Here's what I mean by that. Your life, in a sense, becomes an extension of our gatherings because you kind of carry with you what Richard Foster calls the portable sanctuary of the soul. That you are in the presence of God as an extension of us gathered in the presence of God. What this means kind of a little bit more tangibly is that you do the things that we do together. You sing, even when you're on your own. You could listen to worship music in your car. You pray, you study, you drink wine. I mean, grape juice, right? So we do the kind of things, and if you want to, like every time you take a bath, I guess. Maybe that's your personal version of, I don't know, that one's a little bit of a stretch. But you get the point. Like you, you do the kinds of things on your own that we do here together because you're recognizing that your whole life encompasses this. Honestly, even with the food and drink, I, I'm playing and yet I'm not because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. If you can eat or drink to the glory of God, then you can do everything to the glory of God. 
I teach one of probably my heaviest class at the college is a class called the Doctrine of God. I'm teaching it this next spring. It's it's a 5,000 level course, so it's designed for seniors and those who have been like are part of a five year program who are wanting to go into grad school. And it's like a lot of times you get like the brainiacs in there that want to say really long words and be smart. So I'm going to organize my whole class this next semester. I'm going to say everything you need to know about God you learned in this prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. Amen. And I think that's actually probably true. Everything you need to know about God is present in that prayer, including the response to him. Anyway, so, so we do kind of the same things in our lives that we do on Sunday. In addition to this, when we're not doing those things, we're still exhibiting a life of worship. Why? Well, the basic mentality is that God always comes first. And to acknowledge him in every situation means to allow him to come first. So in all your life, acknowledge and appropriately express the awesomeness of God. What does that mean? Well, praise him, thank him, trust him, serve, serve him, obey him, and enjoy him. Let me give you a verse for it. This is my, mm, one of my three favorite verses in the Bible, Colossians 3.17. This is the first verse I memorized. My mama made me memorize this and say it like all the time, and I'm actually grateful for it. Colossians 3.17 is coming. It is there, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, everything you do, Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So I don't pretend to know exactly what that means in your life, but I do believe that as you focus yourself on who God is, and in these moments that make up your life, just as my life is made up of other such moments, I'm sitting down and I have an hour at my desk, what am I going to do? It wouldn't be a bad idea for me to say, well, who is God actually, and what would I do to express his greatness? Probably answer this email. But I do this now as a way of worshiping him. So in some ways, it's not about doing different things. It's about doing the same things differently. One of my favorite books on this is a tiny little book called The Practice of the Presence of God. You can literally fit the thing in your back pocket. Written by this dishwasher at a monastery named Nicholas Herman, known by Brother Lawrence is his pen name. And he writes this book about how he made it his, his life's goal to try to always remain aware of the presence of God. Not just when he's praying, but when he's washing dishes, when he's running errands. If you need something in your back pocket to remind you, look at that. So also, as we live a life of worship, we're careful to beware about competitors. And really, it's always the best things in life that compete with God for our worship. It is never the lame things. Why would you be tempted to worship lame things? No, you worship family, work, country, hobby, and then you can fill in your own blank. So how do you do this? You just really envision your entire life, your normal life as the context for worship. It's gonna look different in different situations because again, we express in appropriate ways who God is. So if you're a teacher, the appropriate expression of God's greatness would be to care about your students. What does that mean in practice? Put everything you can within reason into this being a good lesson. If you're a salesperson, maybe you Look for an opportunity to encourage someone who's coming into your store. It doesn't mean that you like have a gospel tract in your back pocket and you're waiting to drop the word on them, everybody who walks in. That probably isn't going to go so well. If the time comes, then go for it, absolutely. But you're just looking for opportunities to engage as a worshiper. If you are in uh, customer service, if you're in the food industry, if you're any number of things, you think about how in your world, worship manifests itself. And if there are any other Christians in your particular situation, have a conversation together. Because that conversation between the two or three of you is going to even be more beneficial than anything we could come up with in here. And so what we're doing in all these ways is that we're consistently asking, sometimes intentionally, sometimes we have to kind of do this as a, as a practice, as a discipline to get ourselves thinking in a certain way. But eventually we just kind of naturally ask, okay, so who is God right now? What is true about God? And what difference does that make for this particular moment? 
You start asking that question and it will make a difference for how you live your life. So that's how we worship. It's not rocket science. You just kind of do it. So let me give you, though, some additional reflections on worship. We'll make our way through this list, and we may have to pick up with that very last part next week. We'll see how long this takes. So here are just a few different thoughts about worship. Worship, in case I haven't made this clear, is a response to God. It is not just something we conjure up out of nowhere. It is a response to him, to his actions, usually, first of all, because we come to know him by him doing things in our world, in our lives, to us, with us, around us, in his actions or for his actions, but also in a deeper level is a response to his nature, to who he is, to his intrinsic worthiness. Worship was Israel's very first command, top of the ten. First one wasn't do not murder, although that's kind of a big deal. Wasn't keep the Sabbath, wasn't don't covet. It wasn't even don't make an image. It was worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Not because God is egotistical, because, but because if you were rightly ordering the world on the basis of how reality actually is, then the first thing you would do is worship. That's just what God is worth. So again, the question, who, what is true about God and, and how do I do this? So worship is a response to him. Secondly, to worship God rightly is to worship God alone. Biblically, the primary threat to worship is not atheism, it is idolatry. It is when we allow something else to take the place of God in our lives. We do this in a number of different ways. We can get pretty fancy with it, matter of fact. And especially in our world, we don't think we're idolaters because we don't actually like bend a knee to an image. Instead, we bend a knee to like a cup of coffee or a cup of something else, perhaps. Uh, We bend a knee to a particular dream. We bend the knee to a particular ideal. And we do this in a couple of different ways. Sometimes we, we, and let me put it these negatively, because we worship God, we don't treat anything else like God whether it be uh, an image or a substance or a person or an idea or a desire or a dream. We don't treat anything else like God. We don't make anything else ultimate in our lives. We don't devote ourselves to some cause before him. But then similarly, and this is the sneaky one, we don't treat God like anything else. Anytime you have God and, you're teetering on idolatry. And I mean, again, the good things that I love as well. God and family, just about God and family, okay, yeah, that can be appropriate if you mean God then family and family in a certain way because God. But there, there technically is no God and. God and country, well, if you mean God then country and your country in a certain way because of God, okay, but actually no, not God and anything. So we don't, what we do here is we don't say that we're not worshiping God. We just kind of tweak our understanding of God a little bit and this is the classic idolatry. This is Exodus 32. Moses is up on the mountain getting the commands and the Israelites are down below and they're like, man, he's taking a while. And then look at Aaron and they say, you gotta, you gotta help us out. We gotta do something. So he's like, give me your gold. So they throw all the gold in the eater and then out pops this golden calf. And you know what they say after the golden calf comes out? They say, this is Yahweh, the God who brought you up out of Egypt. They're not trying to move on to a different God. They're just trying to take this God who they can't control and put him into some manageable form because that's what's comfortable for them. This is what we do. Most of us in this room would never say, I'm just going to not worship God and instead give myself to this other thing. We say instead, well, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm devoted to this, but it's because I'm devoted to God. Really? Because I'm not quite sure that God talks about that same thing in the same way in which you do. 
So I'm not trying to pour on anybody. Trust me, I preach toward myself more than anyone when it comes to idolatry. We can make an idol of anything. Yours are probably different than mine, but all of us are tempted in some direction. But we, because we worship God, worship God alone. Number three, to worship God rightly is to worship God together. Andy, you hit on this, and I just want to piggyback directly on what you said. Because you talked about how you even mentioned Revelation. I'm going to read it here in a second. About how we worship as one. And I would argue that if we don't worship as one, something is significantly wrong with our worship. There's this ancient Jewish um, story about these two brothers. One of them was, was married, the other one was single, and they lived on adjacent farms. And uh, the married brother would, you know, thinking about his single brother, and he wasn't going to have kids to take care of him, and if something went wrong, then he would be in a dangerous situation. So every night, this older brother, who, who had a wife and children, would throw a bag of grain over his shoulder and carry it over to his brother's barn and empty it out. Meanwhile, the other brother, the single one, the younger one, is looking at his brother over here and he's thinking, listen, it's just me, I'm fine, I'm taking care of my brother, he's got a wife, he's got kids, he's got to take care of them. And so he, every night at a different time, would, he didn't know the other thing was going on, he would throw a bag of grain over his shoulder and carry it over and pour it in his brother's arms. And according to the legend, there was this one night where they just happened to be doing this at the same time and they ran into each other and they saw each other and they immediately realized what was going on. So they paused And tears filled their eyes. They dropped their bags of grain and they embraced. And according to the legend, this is the spot where God decided he would build his temple. Because he said, my presence belongs in a place where brothers act like this. Now that is not a historical account. But it says something very true. Because God tells us that it is a good thing when brothers dwell together in unity. And Jesus himself makes a very big deal about worship, not just being the this, but also the this. Let me show you a couple of verses to show what I'm talking about. First one's from the mouth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, so we're talking about worship, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So like you're worshiping God. And Jesus says, well stop, like time out, pause, over here, deal with the conflict, then come back. Dang, like that means that this, like oneness is important. And when you look, yes, at the book of Revelation, Andy, this is probably the one you had in your mind. Let's take a look at this vision of heaven. This is the picture that we're working toward. Revelation 7 said, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We worship. And because we worship, we worship as one. And if we're worshiping in a divided church, we have a problem. Because God's presence belongs in a place where not just brothers... But enemies act like this. So this is not to be a place where there are political distinctions that keep us apart. This is not to be a place where there are racial distinctions that keep us apart. This is not to be a place where we all look the same and we come from the same economic class and we have the same traditions and we speak the same language. If that is the case, then something may be wrong with our worship. 
And if we don't all, if we, do, if we all look exactly like everyone else, at some point we probably have to ask ourselves whether it is really God that we're worshiping. Let me give you one more thought, and I think I'll probably be done after this. Uh, we worship not because life is awesome, but because God is good. Worship does arise out of some of the most unlikely situations. I remember this first time this came home to me. It was actually, it would have been in uh, 2003 or four when I was an intern here at this church about a decade ago. I remember I, I got to go with Scott Insminger to, um, I interned under him, so I, he, he, he's responsible for me, so you can blame him for everything. Um, I interned under him and I got to go to this week of camp that he was overseeing in Colorado. And it was an interesting experience for me because I was the camera guy. Like I'm, I am not good at any of those things, but I got to be the camera guy this week and it was actually super fun for me. It was kind of this challenge, right? So I'm my, like my one job is to make sure that I have as much of the stage in the shot as possible and that there's nothing distracting it, right? That's pretty simple. So I'm trying to do this. And on the first night I realized that there was these hands that just kept getting in my way. Put, put your hands down. You know what I mean? Go worship somewhere else. There's a hand just in my way, so I'm trying to avoid it. He's in my shot. And I look down and I see this, this, this kid, this student, and I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. And I am not at all trying to be mean or rude, but he just, he wasn't the kind of kid that would like be super pumped about life. And I started to watch him throughout the week and he didn't seem to have a whole lot of friends and he seemed to be pretty socially awkward and his clothes weren't exactly cool and he wasn't exactly like a good looking or, or popular kid. And yet every night he'd come back together and he'd just be worshiping, hands raised in the air. And finally I got over myself and thought, man, put your hands on my screen all you want. But I couldn't help but look at him and ask, I'm not trying to be harsh, but what could you possibly have to be singing about? And I remember I came back here that next week and I sat over here in this section where I sat at the time and, and I don't know who, who this was, but there was a, a young man in the front seat who uh, was by all counts one of the sweetest people I'd ever met, but he, he had, there's, there was something going on with him, I'm not exactly sure what, and he, just, he was just worshiping, he didn't care. He didn't care that he was out of rhythm. He didn't care about what he sounded like. He was just rolling. And again, I don't mean to go into any detail or, or poor scorn or fun. I'm not making fun of anything. But I remember looking at him as a young guy and thinking, man, like, you don't have anything that most of the people in this room probably want. Like, what could you possibly have to be singing about? And I think about another story I once heard about, about a guy who was in prison. Both he and his best friend had just been put there. They had just suffered punishment for preaching the gospel. They'd been arrested, they'd been tried, they'd been beaten. They had been beaten with whips made up of uh, these, these cat of nine tails with the flogging, you know what it is, with the little metal pieces and the bone and, and the teeth and the sharp objects and ripping their skin apart. And then they'd been thrown not just into jail but into the inner dungeon and they're in there in the middle of the night. But instead of despising God in their pain, what were they doing? <laughs> Paul and Silas were leading a worship service. Here's the verse, Acts 16, 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Can you picture the scene that led up to the, conver the scene of the conversation that led up to this point? Like they're just, and they're trying to sleep but unable to do so because they literally have like gaping wounds all around them and suddenly Paul whispers, hey Silas, you asleep man? And Silas is like, how can I be sleeping? Of course I'm not, I'm in pain. And Paul's like, hey dude, you wanna sing a song? And Silas is like, you're weird, man. <laughs> and Paul's like, no, for real. And Silas is like, whatever, let's go for it. And they start singing and people start watching. And they're just, what, you know those other prisoners are looking at these guys going, what could you possibly have to be singing about? And they knew the truth that he knew, that that kid knew, that eventually I learned. They're not singing about life. They're singing about God. 
And sometimes worship can arise out of the most unlikely situations because we're not worshiping. We're neither singing nor trusting nor serving nor obeying because life is awesome, but because God is good. He is that good. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity for us together today. And I pray that you bless us as we seek to be faithful to you. I pray that you'd be with us as we look to you to show us who you are and as we learn to worship. We thank you for the opportunity to do so and we pray this week that as we have this on our minds and perhaps it was even by your providence that we are in the middle of our conversation about such things and maybe what we should take from this is that worship is uh, always still going, that it's a never-ending conversation between Uh, us to one another about you and us to you about you. So show yourself to us in whatever ways you can. Help us to see you clearly and to worship you faithfully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.